the poems from uh, when my mum used to read them to me when I was a kid. All right. How to sum this up. <laughs> the other day, very bored, I was trying to find something to watch and I landed on a documentary. I love documentaries. They always seem like a safe bet. And I landed on this thing called T.S. Eliot, The Search for Happiness. Seemed pretty inoffensive. I got 90 seconds in and Tom, who was in the room with me, was on the floor screaming, this is why people hate poetry. And I knew exactly what he meant. I knew exactly what he meant. This documentary has somehow distilled down into its essence the thing that makes poetry a hard sell, the reason that it's difficult to sell books and get people to readings and tell your family what you do. It's all here in these 60 minutes of terrible documentary filmmaking. And it's kind of an achievement. I'm kind of uh, impressed, actually, at how bad it is. And I wanted to try to articulate what the this is. This is why people hate poetry. What is that essence that these two documentary makers who put this thing out in 2019 uh, have, have distilled so perfectly? I tried to get it down into one sentence and I think what it is, is the way it makes the case for why we should care. So it's about Eliot, who's not maybe the the sexiest of poets that you could go for. There's no uh, random shootings or or, um, depraved alcoholism to go for. He does have a crazy wife, which they lean on pretty hard. But uh, yeah, you know, he's he's pretty um, pretty stand up guy. Uh, Seems like pretty shy and and retiring type, actually, um, at the end of the day. But yeah, basically the thesis or the structure of the documentary, it just states Eliot is important because he's important. He wrote important poems. He wrote this thing called Proofrock. He wrote this thing called The Wasteland. This guy with cool hair came along and cut out a bunch of it. That was exciting. And then he was the inspiration for Cats. And it does this through some very chopped up um, interviews with some very stressed out academics. And it, what it doesn't do is ever touch on why these people like T.S. Eliot, why they enjoy it, why these poems are pleasurable. I love documentaries, but I'm yet to see one on any poet that doesn't just fall into this trap immediately. This doesn't get seduced by the significance and the importance of its subject and doesn't focus wholly on the skill or the originality of the poet. I would love to see a documentary or a poetry book review or an article about how cool poetry is these days that admits that there can also be pleasure in poetry that talks about why the person talking about it actually enjoys it. Is a man who writes through agonies. I mean, Eliot was a towering figure in both poetry, literature, and, dare I say, culture in the 20th century. There's no one like him. 
he's part American, part English, but he's based in England, and he's absolutely unique. Elliot came from a very... Yesterday I just finished reading Death in Venice, which is a very short, very weird book by a guy called Thomas Mann. Basically the main character, who is kind of Thomas Mann in the future, is a successful writer, very famous, has a lot of status, and he's got there through hard work and discipline. He gets up every morning, he writes for three or four hours, he takes his walk, he does his reading, and he does it all again. And through a lifetime of this kind of dedication, he's, he's gotten to where he is. But at the start of the book, he's kind of having a bit of a crisis of creativity and maybe a crisis of faith in this structure, in the adoration that he has he's gained. And this line jumped out at me because I feel like it's sort of talking about the problem that this documentary also has. So he's thinking about his work, he's thinking about his fame, and he says, men do not know why they award fame to one work of art rather than another. Without being in the faintest connoisseurs, they think to justify the warmth of their commendations by discovering in it a hundred virtues, whereas the real ground of their applause is inexplicable. It is sympathy. Setting aside whether we have to be connoisseurs or not, I really think he's onto something there, and I wonder exactly what he means by sympathy. I think he's right in saying the applause, the reason that we love things is inexplicable. I'm going to get more into that in a second, but I want to go via this problem of reviews as well, because I think it's all kind of pointing to the same thing. So reviews are a really easy place to go to see this inaction, this problem of significance over pleasure. A little while ago, I got to talk with Matthew again for Slee Ricketts, and in part, we talked about Terence Hayes' latest poems in The New Yorker. Uh, I was really critical of these poems, a lot more critical than I'm usually comfortable being in public. Um, But since I was being so critical, I thought I'd have a look at what The New Yorker had to say around the time that Terence Hayes put out his book that I like so much, American Sonnets for My Past and Future Assassin. The New Yorker's resident poetry guy is called Dan Chasen, and when American Sonnets came out, this is what he said about it. He writes, Hayes, who is 46, won the 2010 National Book Award and is a professor at NYU. In his five books, he has perfected a sort of poem where wild jams carom inside arbitrary formal boundaries. Just forget the fact that no one's ever used the word carom in a sentence, but um, think about all the status that's packed in to those two sentences. 2010 National Book Award, professor at NYU. What he's saying and what this documentary keeps saying over and over again is this person's important. They have status. So you should like the poems. You should like the poems not because I told you to like them, because I'm not going to tell you how I feel about them, but because of how lauded this person is. So Dan goes on to say, for this latest collection, he made one big choice at the outset. All the sonnets share the same title, American Sonnet for My Past and Future Assassin. 
This repetition is superstitious, a tribute paid to the imagined assassin, as if the poems can buy back time in 14-line reprieves. Like a coin toss that keeps coming up heads, iterated titles suggest an occult lucky streak bound to break. That's such a cool description of the book. I never thought of it that way. That's that's awesome. But that's kind of all that Dan does in this review. He just describes the book in cool ways like 10 or 12 times uh, and then he's out. We never get to know whether he likes the poems or not. He focuses on what they do. The closest I could find to a sentence where he actually talks about his feelings is when he says, a white reader of these poems has to think hard about his own commodified analysis of them, which is true. They're really powerful in that way. I still don't know if, if Dan enjoyed that experience or if he hated it. Um, I know nothing about his, his emotional response at all. I'm sure he had one. Edward Thomas, he's, you know, the, the new tune of all time. He's absolutely, love song Alfred Drake, J. Prufrock is the most extraordinary innovation, in, departure. It is staggeringly original in those times. The reason why we still read Eliot um, is because of the, the rhythm and the pacing of the writing. He's an, he's an absolute genius when it comes to using the pace of a life. One of the other things that um, he is incredible. So coming back to this problem of the ground of applause being inexplicable, as Thomas Mann's writer has it, there are some possibilities as to why Dan didn't include how he felt about Terence Hay's book in the review. Maybe he hated it and uh, he didn't want to say so. Or maybe he really loved it and he didn't know how to. I think maybe we don't talk in terms of pleasure because pleasure is often really hard to describe. When something really moves you, you can end up kind of sputtering, like a bit inarticulate. You sort of end up in this place of like, ah, oh, it's so fantastic, I love that poem. I love that line, ah, oh, it's amazing. And that's probably a really good thing because the lack of language here in that moment protects whatever it is that's pleasurable. If you picked it apart, by saying exactly why you liked it, you might lose something. I think this applies as well when we talk about film or music. If you think about um, the way we talk about popular music at the moment, if you really love a song, you're probably going to sum it up in, in just a couple of words. You're going to say it's a banger, it's a bop. Uh, if you are uh, ancient like me, you might say... Um, that song rocks, <laughs> something like that. It's, uh, it, it's not particularly erudite when you really love something. It's, it's a little bit embarrassing, actually. But the fact that we can't describe it well doesn't mean that it's not relevant. It doesn't mean that we should just skip over it, even if it doesn't, does make you go a little bit red in the face. And if you, if you were going to try to break it down, with poetry, you could maybe talk about the pleasure that comes through surprise. So I was thinking about Larkin's High Windows and how it starts out with these kind of really coarse images of this young couple 
uh, talking about how she's on uh, birth control and, and they're fucking and whatever. And then it ends the sun comprehending glass and beyond it the deep blue air that shows nothing and is nowhere and is endless. That turn, that surprise is, is really pleasurable, not to mention how beautiful those lines are. And then I was thinking too about the first time I really got into um, Hopkins, No Worse There Is None, when he talks about more pangs will, schooled at four pangs, wilder ring, comforter where, where is your comforting? The melancholy of the poem is a kind of pleasure as well. Or it could just be fun, right? <laughs> like when I, uh, my go-to for fun in poetry is Eileen Miles. And when Eileen starts out a poem by saying something like, I always put my pussy in the middle of trees, like a waterfall, like a doorway to God, like a flock of birds. That's very funny. I think that Eileen is joking. <laughs> I think that they're having a lot of fun there. And, and I think we're allowed to find pleasure in that as well. But look, it's, it's probably not that useful to, to even try to break it down like this, though. Because that's the best thing about it is when a poem moves you in this way, it's between you and the poem. The poet has left the room long ago. Whatever's happening is between you and the page, you and the screen, whatever you're reading. There's an exchange there and it's, it's yours to enjoy. Of course, I'm not arguing that pleasure is everything. Obviously, skill, originality, historical significance, these are all great reasons to care about a poem or a poet. But when we leave out the pleasure bit, when we leave out enjoyment, we can risk making it sound like poetry is for aesthetics. People who can get high on pure analysis. But we know this isn't true, right? We are getting high on each other's language and on how that language makes us feel even if we're too shy and it's too cringy to admit it when that pleasure is there it can be a revelation I finished my course on Rilke the other week and honestly I really struggled through these elegies that he wrote at his his uh, lady friend's castle the Duino elegies they're long and they're dense and uh, he seems to be saying six things at once. They're kind of annoying, but I'm so glad I stuck with them because by the time we got to the last few, I started to put it together and the last stanza, the last couple of stanzas in the 10th elegy left me in that inarticulate state. This last poem ends like this, but suppose the endlessly dead would awaken us some emblem. They might point to the catkins hanging from the empty hazel trees or direct us to the rain descending on black earth in early spring. And we, who always think of happiness rising, would feel the emotion that almost baffles us when a happy thing falls. I am so on board. I still don't know if I like Rilke the guy, but I'm so on board with the work now. And so happy to be. <laughs> it, yeah, what a relief after getting all the way through those elegies and going, oh, wow, these are actually really great. 
All of which is to say, it doesn't have to be significance that's the map. Pleasure can be the map as well. That's what I would say to anyone who is trying to find a way into poetry for the first time or someone who's trying to find a way back in, maybe after feeling irritated or alienated for a while. The example I keep coming back to is going to the art gallery. I'm not an expert on visual art at all. Uh, I can probably point to a surrealist painting and an impressionist painting if I'm if I'm forced to, but mostly I am just wandering around and I'm kind of bored and I'm thinking about how much my feet hurt and why the hell gallery floors have to be so hard. But a couple of years ago, I went to the NGV and I was just killing time and wandering around looking at stuff and eventually I came across this really quiet painting kind of tucked away in the corner which is called Moonrise. It's by a Heidelberg school painter called David Davies. I think I had a vague awareness that he was a Heidelberg painter, but I'd never heard of him before. I really didn't want to know anything else about it rather than what was written on the little card on the wall because there was this exchange between me and the painting. I just stood there staring at it. I was kind of spellbound I didn't want to leave it I think I walked away and then came back and looked at it again just to make sure it was still there I I wanted to take it with me and I feel better knowing that it exists there in the gallery and I can't really tell you why it is inexplicable but maybe it's that sympathy that Thomas Mann was talking about feel weird framing a whole argument around Thomas Mann, who was a deep weirdo. <laughs> just, just so you know, I know he was weird. Okay, so be that as it may, I think that's a good line. So here's a documentary I want to see on Elliot. Maybe leave out the fact that his wife was crazy. I'm not sure it's that relevant. Um, maybe try not to get so hung up on his historical significance or at least leave that until after start by getting the academics drunk or otherwise relaxed into a state where they can tell you that they enjoy Eliot that they find pleasure in his poems they don't have to necessarily tell me why I just want to know that they do so he's a great great and innovative poet. His friend Ezra Pound said the only job of a poet was to be original, make it new. And Eliot was making it new on a colossal scale. He cultivates Eliot. He sees Eliot's genius in the early teens when the love song... It's going to be a messy sport, of course, but um, what I will say is that it'd be a brave pundit that writes off Scott Morrison at this stage, notwithstanding some of the challenges he faces. Uh, They wrote him off before the last federal election. He came home and won, and I'm confident he'll do the same this time. Do you like Scott Morrison? Um, I I think Scott Morrison's doing a very uh, difficult job at the moment in leading our country.